Welcome to Fellowship Podcast. We're so excited you tuned in. For more information about who we are, check out our website at fbclife.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church man. It's so good to be back with you guys, worshiping in all three dimensions. I love getting to hang out with you guys. Hey, I don't know if the Lord has been doing this in your heart, but one of the things he's been doing in my heart in this season is, listen, uh, I think that worshiping, like getting together with God's people, singing praises to our God, whether that's here in person or with us virtually, that's not an optional spiritual activity for my heart, and it's not for yours either. Man, I love, love, love getting to get together with you guys and worship our King. Hey, I got a couple of things before we jump into 1 Timothy. First, you already heard about this. Trunk or treat, you guys, is going to be awesome. There's going to be lots of of safely handed out with gloved attendants candy. We're going to have inflatables that they're going to shut down every 25 or 30 minutes to wipe down and clean and then open back up. My kid's favorite, there's going to be a petting zoo. I mean, listen, we all know this. Trick-or-treating is going to be impacted by the pandemic, and so we want to provide a place for our community so that kids in our community might have an opportunity to dress up, get some candy that dads across the land can steal for themselves in the coming months. It's going to be awesome. So listen, we're going to be pumping a lot of stuff out through social media this week. Love for you guys to share our Trunk or Treat promos. And obviously, we'd love for you to join us as well with your friends, family, and neighbors. It's going to be awesome. Second, we are eight days away from an election. Did you know that? I get like three texts a day from different candidates, some of which are not even Missouri candidates. I don't know how Mississippi got my number, but apparently they think I'm crucial in their election this year. Uh, We are in an election season, so I do want to say a few quick things uh, about that. We said this from the beginning, that you don't check your Christianity at the door when you step into the ballot box. Like you step into the political process in the country, in this country, just like you step into every other area of your life as a Christian. We vote as Christians, just like we work as Christians, just like we live in our homes as Christians as well. And so listen, if you're in this season and you're wrestling with what does it look like for me to live as a Christian in this divided political moment, we gave an entire sermon about what it looks like to, as a Christian, approach the political process in our country uh, last November. I'd love for you to hop on our website, especially if this is like your first election season, voting in a national election. It'd be great for you to spend 30 minutes uh, watching Christianity and politics on our website. But let me just say three quick things now. First, you should vote. Listen, it is an unbelievable privilege that you and I get to participate in the process of of electing those people who are going to govern us. In fact, billions of people across human history have longed for that privilege. We get it. So you should vote. Listen, there is no perfect government in our fallen world, but I'm convinced that a democratic republic with checks and balances is the best possible government in a fallen world filled with fallen people. And so you should participate in that. Second, you should vote informed. You need to think about what candidates are standing for. And the best way to get informed is to go directly to the sources. So if you haven't taken an hour to hop onto Trump's website and to Biden's website, to hop onto the gubernatorial candidates' websites, if you haven't taken an hour to hop onto those websites and read position papers about where those candidates stand, for example, on religious freedom and on abortion 
and on caring for the least of these and engaging in our current racial climate. If you haven't read position papers on those, you need to do that at some point in the coming days. Don't assume that your favorite biased media source is giving you the full picture on uh, both candidates. Third, you should relax. Listen, our God is a king. He rules and reigns no matter who happens to be sitting in the Oval Office. Do you hear me? Which means that no matter who happens to be sitting in the Oval Office come the day after the election day this year, no matter who happens to be sitting there, God will continue to bring the gospel to more people in our area and all over the world. Just so you know, no matter who wins our national elections, Fellowship Bible Church is going to continue proclaiming the goodness of the good news of the gospel both in our area and, Lord willing, all over the world because our God is that good. Praise him even in the middle of an election season. Now, we are in the middle of a with series in the most political and politically and socially divided moment that I can remember. Our church has very explicitly taken a, a step back from all of the craziness. And we've talked about what does it look like to live deeply with our Savior. We've taken a step back and we've worked at, wrestled with, what does it look like to meet deeply with the Savior of the world. And that started in this series by seeing a vision from Jesus about what it looks like to live deeply with him. In John 15, Jesus gives us a vision for life, abiding with him. He says that part of your birthright as a follower of Jesus is to live deeply with him, abiding in relationship with him. And we said, but wait a second, abiding is not a word we use very often, so we need to wrestle with what does it actually mean in our lives. And we saw that abiding has a foundation, the gospel. Before we ever move towards Jesus, Jesus moves toward us in grace. Abiding also as a content, Jesus' love. We saw that Jesus loves us by initiating with us. We're not an accident. He pursued us. Jesus loves by welcoming us in. He has called us his friends. How cool is that? And Jesus loves by sacrificing for us. And then we saw that abiding as a helper. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to draw us close to him, to empower us to live the sort of life that he's called us to live. That's the vision for your life, Christian. Jesus is, has proclaimed that he wants you to abide deeply with him, to live deeply in a relationship with him. And the question we've had to ask over the last four or five weeks was how do we do that? Like brass tacks in our actual lives, how do we abide with Jesus? And so we've been looking at a set of pathways, practices, that Christians for all of our 2,000 year history have been using as pathways to meet deeply with our Savior. So we saw that Christians for all of our 2,000 years have opened up the Bible and we've heard from Jesus in his word. We had a number of quiet time guides for you that we, we allowed you to have and we, we ran out. We have more out there as you leave. We'd love for you to, to grab some of those. We saw that for all of our 2,000 year history, Christians like Jesus have prayed to our good and gracious father, asking him to provide for us. We saw that for all of our 2,000 year history, Christians have taken the good news of the gospel and they've seen it move from here to hear as we've confessed every one of our sins and known that we know that we know that Jesus has forgiven every single one of them at great cost to himself. And last week, we saw that for all of our 2,000 years history, Christians have met deeply with their Savior as they've shared the healing, spiritual healing that Jesus has brought about in our hearts with other people. And just so you know, this entire series 
has been, not to be weird, your pastor begging you, do you hear me? Begging you to not settle spiritually. And this entire series has been me begging you, begging my own heart to not settle for a go-through-the-motions, lukewarm relationship with Jesus. Jesus has a vision for our lives that's bigger than that. It's more compelling than that. It's more life-changing than that. Jesus has been lifting our eyes to life with him. This morning, we're going to see another pathway that Christians for all of our history have used as a means through which we might meet deeply with Jesus. And it's an unexpected pathway. This morning, we're going to talk about giving in 1 Timothy 6. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into God's word. Go ahead and pray with me. Jesus, we love you. God, we do thank you for the privilege of being here, getting to join with the people of God. We do not want to neglect meeting together, lifting our hands in worship. And so, God, thank you for an opportunity to worship. And, God, we don't want to stop worship as we open up your word. So, God, draw our hearts into even deeper worship as we hear from you in 1 Timothy. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, give me the words to communicate to your people. I pray that I would say exactly what you want me to say this morning. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed that opposites attract in relationships? I get to do a fair amount of premarital counseling. It's one of my favorite things to do. And, and my informal statistics are that for every one couple that's attracted to one another because of how similar they are personality type, there are three couples that are attracted to one another because of how different they are. Like the introverts get attracted to the extroverts who actually have friends, you know. And the, the, the uh, rigid kind of uh, structured people get attracted to the freer, spontaneous people who actually have fun. So listen, let's, let's do a quick poll to see if my informal statistics work out. If you are married or dating someone this morning, and you would say that the person you're married to or dating is very similar to you, personality type, go ahead and raise your hand high. Awesome. If you are married or dating somebody and you would say that the person that you are married to or dating is very different than you personality type, raise your hand high. See, my statistics work out, right? Now, if you're married to or dating someone very different than you, here's how it always works. That thing that, they're, that you guys are different on, it's so cool and exciting when you're dating, like for Kate and I, my default in conversation, for Kate and I, we approach conversations differently. So my default in conversation when, when I step into conversations is to largely remain pretty superficial. So listen, you and I, we could go and eat some wings and talk about college football for two hours, and I would consider that a great way to spend my time. Uh, Clayton and I, we can have a meeting and just kind of trade office quotes back and forth the entire meeting. Welcome to staff meeting every Tuesday morning. Kate's not that way. Like, I still remember the first time we went to, to Kate's parents' house when I was dating her, and we sat down at the table. We ate a delicious meal. We all put our plates and dishes in the sink. And then, this was crazy in my mind, we went back to the table and sat back down and for like an hour talked about our feelings. Like, I had no category for any of that stuff. And, and while we were dating, man, it was awesome. Like, we're going deep in conversation. We're really digging in, and then you get married. In that difference, it becomes, let's just say, an opportunity for sanctification, doesn't it? 
So, uh, uh, for example, I went away for a weekend uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was that week that we did the confession sermon. And I got back into town after spending 48 hours away uh, from my family. And Kate had made me a meal. She's really gracious. And uh, it was delicious. And I'm sitting on the back porch. This is when it was still nice outside. And I'm eating my, my meal. And Kate comes and sits down next to me. And guess what Kate says? She doesn't say, hey, how was your weekend? doesn't say, hey, uh, me and the kids, we went to Rutledge Wilson Farm Party. It was awesome. She sits down and says, hey, good confession sermon. What sins did you confess? <laughs> right? You see, that's how Kate loves people if you get to know her. Why would we waste time, she thinks, on superficial conversations when there are so many important, deep things that we can talk about? Friends, what you need to see is that Jesus, he's kind of like that. We saw it last week, didn't we? He comes to the Samaritan woman at the well and he presses into the most painful, shame-filled area of her life. Not because he's trying to just make her feel shame or pain, but because he wants to bring healing there. And then this morning, we're going to see that Jesus, in his grace, is going to press into a deep area in our life through the Apostle Paul. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, you guys, are awesome letters in the Bible. If you haven't gotten a chance to read 1 and 2 Timothy recently, go ahead and take some time this week. Read them. They are unbelievably rich. In fact, next spring, we're going to walk verse by verse through 2 Timothy. It's one of my favorite books in, in the entire Bible where Paul is just going to unload a lifetime's worth of wisdom on top of us. In 1 Timothy, Paul, an older mentor, is talking to Timothy, his younger pastor mentee, and he's basically giving him advice about how to lead his church. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see Paul giving Timothy advice about how he should approach money and then how he should lead his church to approach money as well. So 1 Timothy 6, let's start in verse 6. Paul says this, Now there is great gain... In godliness, with contentment. If you like to underline, underline that word contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. There's that word again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root, is a root of all kinds of evils. Pay attention to those words. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, I think this is the key to the whole passage. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone, Paul can't help himself, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul is the king of run-on sentences. That's one right there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous, if you like to underline, underline that word, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul, in these verses, challenges basically three groups of people. He challenges those who do not have a lot of resources on how they approach money. He challenges those who do have a lot of resources on how they approach money. And he challenges Christian leaders, Timothy and every other Christian leader, on how they approach money. So let's deal with each of the three groups one at a time. First, Paul challenges Christian leaders in how they are to approach money. Christian leaders, Timothy and every other Christian leader, is to flee from some things and to pursue some other things. Look what Paul says in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Timothy and every other Christian leader is to flee these things. Now, if you're reading your Bible, if you see something like a word like these things, you should ask yourself in your head, what are these things? These things are what we see up in verses 9 and 10. Christian leaders are to flee the love of money. They're to flee the desire to be rich in verse 9. Christian leaders must actively flee from these things, and we should pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, why should we do that? Look down at verse 14. Paul says to keep the commandment. This is Paul's word for the gospel proclaimed, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you say yes, to becoming a pastor. You are saying yes to not pursuing riches, and you're saying yes to pursuing righteousness, faithfulness, godliness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Why? Well, because you care about the good news of God's grace being shown to be life-changing, glorious good news. And if the last hundred years have shown us anything in our Christian world, it's that a gospel presentation made by a man who clearly loves money or approval or fame or pleasure more than he loves that gospel is a weak and impoverished gospel presentation. Which means, according to Paul, Christian leaders need to do hard work to make sure that the gospel has reformed how we approach money. And can I be honest with you? That is hard heart work for men and women in ministry. You see, when men and women step into ministry, they have to count the cost. Men and women in ministry are gonna spend their vocational lives working really hard, but not as a pursuit of riches, a pursuit of righteousness in themselves, and Lord willing, a pursuit of righteousness in a people that they deeply Love And all of that hard work that Timothy and Justin and every other ministry leader needs to do, they need to do it because according to Paul, we'll never be able to lead a congregation to approach money rightly if, until we have done the hard work to approach money rightly ourselves. You see, if a Christian leader deep down loves money, still deep down desires to be rich, when he talks to his congregation about money, it'll come off as sheepish or shady. 
See, he'll be sheepish because he doesn't want to upset those he's deep down envious of. Or he'll be shady because he doesn't really care about how his people's hearts approach money as long as they're giving to the church that he leads. Many of you have bad taste in your mouth. The moment I said the word money on this mic from this stage, you got that, that thing in your stomach. You have bad taste in your mouth as it relates to this topic in a church setting because you have had to sit through too many sheepish or shady sermons about how you should approach money. And listen, both sheepish and shady sermons about money have something very particular in common. Both are more concerned that you give than they're concerned with how your heart is approaching money. See, both sheepish and shady sermons are more concerned that that you give than that you approach money with a gospel uh, perspective. You see, whether or not you have a right gospel view of money doesn't matter in sheepish and shady sermons as long as you're giving. But, but Jesus, through Paul, is after something way more than you just dropping some cash in an offering box. Jesus, through Paul, wants to reform your entire approach to money through the good news of his grace toward you. That's what Paul is after at the beginning and at the end of our passage. See, in the beginning of our passage, Paul addresses those who do not have a lot of money. Some of you might be thinking, hey, this sermon's not for me. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have really any money. And Paul implies that those of us who would consider ourselves to be poor need gospel freedom when it comes to our money just as much as those who might have a lot of money. You see, Paul suggests that it's possible to be righteously poor, and it's also possible to be sinfully poor. Now, this is radically countercultural. The, the thing that matters is not whether or not you are poor, but how you approach your poverty. According to Paul, there are righteous poor. Look at verses 6 and 7 in our passage. Paul says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Do you see the key word in those verses? I had you underline it. It's the word contentment. What does that mean? Well, contentment stops looking out in comparison with others and starts looking up in praise for what God has provided for you. If he's given you much, praise him. If he's not given you much, praise him because you have, according to Paul, an awesome opportunity for great gain in godliness. Can you imagine if you were content like that? Can you imagine if you had this sort of contentment? How do we get there? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, there are also, according to Paul, unrighteous poor. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Now notice, it's not the rich who fall into temptation. Do you see what Paul says? It's those who desire to be rich. And, and listen, it's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil. What is it? It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. See, Paul is not saying that it's sinful to have money, just as it's not sinful to not have money, but over-desiring money, loving money, desiring to be rich, that is sinful. We have a word for that. It's an old church word. It goes like this, covetousness, covetousness. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. 
You see, what contentment says is I'm going to stop looking out in comparison with other people. I'm going to start looking up in praise to God for what he has provided for me. Covetousness flips that. Stops looking up to God in praise for what he's provided for you and starts looking out in comparison with other people. If I only had that truck, and if I only had that job, that house, that vacation, that Patagonia quarter zip, then my life would be happy. And in 2020, can we be real about this? It's even harder because our whole economy is built around the idea of creating covetousness, discontentment in your heart so that you might overspend on whatever your thing is in the hopes that that thing will make you happy. This is a problem for all people. Do you hear me? In our culture, this is a problem for every single person in this room. But Paul is suggesting it's especially a problem for those who don't have a lot of resources for those who are poor. We live in a world that's pushing us towards covetousness. We live in a world that's pushing us towards discontentment. How do we fight that? How do we get there? Well, we'll talk about that. But before we do, let's take a moment to evaluate. Like if you would say that you don't have a lot of money, which is your life marked by? Contentment or covetousness? Honestly, before the Lord this morning. Now, We needed to talk about that because it's in the Bible. But we can call a spade a spade, can't we? By any measure, 21st century Americans are far and away the richest people on our planet. And I don't know if you thought about this, we're the richest people to ever walk the face of this planet. If you don't believe me, go talk to Kim Bradley after this service. Go talk to Finch Sprouse. Go on a mission trip with Project Hope or Jesus Film and notice just how resource-rich you are. I used to talk to college students about this sort of thing, about money. And they would always respond the exact same way. Justin, we don't need to think about money yet. We're we're college students. We don't have any. As they were drinking their triple pump venti mochaccino in their brand new Air Force Ones, right? See, Paul, at the end of our passage, addresses the rich. And whether or not we feel rich, we need to listen to what Paul is saying. Paul suggests it's possible to be righteously rich, and it's also possible to be sinfully rich. That's radically countercultural. Paul suggests that what matters is not whether or not you are rich, but how you approach your riches. You see, according to Paul, it's possible to be righteously rich. Look at verse 18 and 19. Paul says, The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The righteously rich are marked by one word. I had you underline it, generous, generosity. Look what Paul says about generous people. They use their money for the good of other people. They're not known for their riches. They're known for being rich in good works toward other people. They find their security in their eternity rather than their nest egg. 401ks are great, but they are not the thing that you find your security in. They realize that they can't take their money with them into the next life, but they can leverage the resources they have in this life to impact eternities. You see, if Paul was in our world, he might ask the question, hey, what's the return on investment on a finite resource being used to impact someone's eternity. That's an infinite ROI. And when you get all these things, it leads to generosity. You see, the righteous rich are generous. They plan their generosity. It's the first item. This might just be symbolic, but it's the first item on their budget. 
They are spontaneously generous. They have margin in their lives to give as the Lord calls them to give to different people throughout the month. They're creatively generous. They think about new ways that they can bless people around them with the resources that God has provided to them. How do we get there? We'll we'll talk about that, but before we do, there are also, according to Paul, unrighteous rich. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, Paul says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Let this mess with you. God is not against you enjoying what he's provided for you. Some of you really love your venti triple pump mochachinas. And ever since I made fun of that, you've just been wrestling to stay engaged in the sermon. But you see what Paul says. You can enjoy your coffee and your RV and your lake house and your tritune. You can enjoy all of those things. But listen, listen, Paul is saying, do not let them get into your heart. You can enjoy the things that God has provided for you, but Paul, like a good pastor, is looking you in the the eye and saying, hey, listen, as you're enjoying those things, watch your heart. Don't be haughty. And don't put your hope in money. You see, haughty people, prideful people, believe in their hearts that there's something inherently better about people with a lot of resources than those without. There's something inherently uh, smarter or harder working about those with a lot of resources than those without. And that sort of haughtiness, friends, that sort of pride, it's a lie. Listen, you may have worked really hard for what you have, and I don't want to minimize that, but you have to get this. Everything you have has come down into your life from the hand of your God. And Paul says we're also not to look to money for the sort of stability that we can only get from God. Security in money is a false security. Security in your 401k or 403b is a false security. So question, how do we kill the pride and the false security that money can give us? How do we get there? We'll talk about that, but before we do, let's take a moment to evaluate. If you would say that you have a lot of resources, if, for example, you have a savings account, and you're not living from paycheck to paycheck, which globally speaking makes you extravagantly rich. If you would say you have a lot of resources, which is your life marked by? Generosity? Or is it marked by pride slash false security? All right. There's a question that's been hanging in the air as we've walked through 1 Timothy 6. And the question is this, how do we get there? Like, how do we stop living as unrighteous poor, unrighteous rich, and start living as righteous poor or righteous rich? How do we live in contentment rather than covetousness? How do we live in generosity rather than false security slash pride? How do we get there? I have two gospel truths and an action for you as I close. Look at verse 13 in 1 Timothy 6. I think it's the key to the whole passage. It points at the theology underneath what Paul calls us to do with our money. Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. If you're going to approach your money rightly, there are two gospel truths that you have to get deep into your heart. First, you must get deep into your heart that God is the giver of everything, even your very life. Hear me? 
everything you own, every opportunity you've had, every opportunity you've missed, all of your resources or all of your lack of resources, all of your marketable skills or all of your non-marketable skills, all of that came from the hand of God into your life. Here's how James, the brother of Jesus, says in one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lies, with, with whom there is no shadow or variation of change. Here's what James is saying. All of your resources, monetary and non-monetary, have graciously come into your life through the hand of your good and gracious Father, which means you and I dare not pretend that we're owners. As Pat would say, we don't touch that glory. We're stewards using the resources that God has entrusted to us for his fame, using the resources that God has entrusted us for our provision, and using the resources that God has entrusted us to bring the good news that changes eternities all over our area and all over our world. Second, you must get deep into your heart that Jesus is the king who suffered to meet your most pressing need. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a story about Jesus. He's standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate, he asks him the question, hey, are you the king of the Jews? This is the testimony that Paul is talking about. Jesus makes this good confession. You have said so. Translation, I am the king. But here's what we know. Jesus is a king unlike any other king that's walked the face of this planet. See, Jesus walked step by step to a Roman cross where he would pay the penalty for all of the sins of all of God's people for all time, where he would win salvation for his people. And think about this. In the moment that you received that salvation, Christian, have you thought about what happened to you? Like in that moment that you received salvation, have you thought about what happened to you right then, in that moment, you were made new at a heart level. The theological term for that, regeneration. In that moment, you were counted righteous by God himself. Theological term, justification. In that moment, you moved from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Theological term, reconciliation. In that moment, the slavery that had marked your life because of your sin, well, the bonds of that slavery was broken by Jesus. Theological term, redemption. And in that moment, you were adopted as a son or a daughter of the king. Theological term, adoption, which means that Jesus went to the cross, think about this, to meet your most pressing spiritual need. And he met that need, need with glorious, super abundant extravagance. So Christian, the rest of your life, do you know what it is? It's just icing. It's all icing on the cake that Jesus has already provided for you. Three-car garage or no three-car garage? The ability to buy new cars or you got to buy used cars with 75K on them for the rest of your life. Lake house or no lake house? It's all just icing on the cake of the salvation that Jesus has already won for you. Can you feel the freedom of that kind of life? How do we get there? I mean, how do we get these truths deep into our hearts so that we might live with generosity rather than pride slash false security? So we might live with contentment rather than covetousness. That's why Jesus cares about your giving. Some pastors have lied to you. Jesus does not need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But he does care about your giving. 
He does care about your money because he knows that your giving is a pathway to deeper relationship. Here's our series with him. You see, every time you give, big and little, it gives God an opportunity to preach a sermon to your heart that's way more powerful than any sermon that I could give from this stage. And that sermon goes like this. God the Father, he's the giver of everything, including your very life. That sermon goes like this. Jesus is the king who willingly walked to a cross to meet your most pressing needs so that everything else in your life is just icing on that cake. So let me say some things about giving. I've said from the beginning that this is the most generous church that I've ever been a part of. Seriously, my first sermon from this stage three and a half years ago, I said this is the most generous church that I've ever been a part of, and that's proven true over and over again. And what I'm challenging you to, church, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a divided political season, is to excel all the more. Uh, I'm not saying this because there's a hidden agenda. Like, I'm not going to drop a surprise campaign on you this morning, but hear me on this. We, as a church, are passionate about bringing Jesus to people who desperately need people, need Jesus, and people too, I guess, but they desperately need Jesus. We, as a church, are passionate about seeing a, a revival sparked in our area. In fact, we think that this season right now, it's like tinderbox in our area, and we're just trying to throw sparks at the tinderbox so that God might light it and see something cool happen in our area. And when you give to our church, you give to that. Our mission partners are passionate about bringing Jesus to people. And when you give to them, you give to that. And more than all of that, as your pastor, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm covetousness, covetous, that God might spark growth and joy in your heart through your giving. So if you're not giving, let me encourage you to go home and to make a plan to start giving. 10% is not a command for Christians like it was a command for the Israelites and in the Old Testament, but it is a guide. And my dream from the beginning has been that every person who would call fellowship their home would give to the mission and vision of what fellowship is up to. We've grown as a church by 20% year over year for the last three years that I've, I've been here. But our giving units have largely remained the exact same. So I wanna encourage you, if you call fellowship your home, to begin by giving something and then work your way to 10% over time. If you are giving, let, let me encourage you to revisit your giving. Kate and I just got to do this. And it's not a bummer conversation. Our resources shifted a little bit. So we got to ask the question, hey, what can we give to what God's doing? How can we give more to what God is doing around us? And more than all of that, I'd encourage you to just to ask the question, are we giving generously right now? Friends, we get to use finite resources to be a part of God's eternal purposes here and all over the world. And even more than that, as we get to be a part of that big story, God changes our hearts through our giving, draws us closer in relationship with himself. Man, I, I'm jealous for that in my life, and I'm jealous for it in your life as well. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you that you love us enough to talk about our money. You love us enough to, to go into the deep places that we'd rather just give you the stiff arm on, to be perfectly honest. And so, God, I pray that you'd continue to speak sermons to my friends in this area. You'd challenge us if we need to be challenged. And for some of us, I pray that you would encourage us that we are living generously. We are living content with contentment right now. God, I pray that you would do that as well. We love you, Jesus. 
Thank you that you are a good and gracious Savior to us that have met all of our most pressing spiritual needs, which gives us the freedom and the foundation to be generous with everything else that you've provided us. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about fellowship or how to get connected, visit our website at fbclife.org and follow us on social media, 417 Fellowship.